Well, if you've been with us over the past several weeks, we, we've been in a series where we've been asking the question of the church. What is the church? And uh, we've been talking about this idea, this, this, the New Testament word for church is ecclesia. What is the idea of ecclesia? What is the idea of what the church is? And, and we've been saying some things, you know, more than the church is a building, more than the church is a, an event that we may go to, more than the church is some sort of a leader. A lot of people say, you know, I go to so-and-so's church or so-and-so's church. More than the church is any of that. The church is a people. This idea of ecclesia is, is a people who have been called out, uh, people who um, come together, uh, uh, people who belong to one another. And so we, we've been looking under the banner of this idea of a people these last few weeks, trying to give a little definition to the idea of a church. The first week that we, we got into the definition, we said that the, the church is a people who believe. We are a people who believe something. We've been called out because of what we believe. Uh, last week, if you were here, we talked about that, that belief is not just something that we assent to mentally, but it's something that affects us. We are a people who attest. We are a people who live lives that line up with that belief, who are changed by what we believe. But this week, the third big idea that I want to look at, what is the church? We are a people who gather. We are a people that come together. Uh, we aren't just a people who separately believe something. We aren't just a people who, you know, have certain ideas or certain experiences uh, by ourselves. No, we're a people that, that get together. Uh, this is so important, what we're doing here, this, this worship gathering, your Bible studies that we urge you to, your groups, the, um, things like the spotted cow, things like this, the parish gatherings that we urge you to. This is, this is right. This is good. This is the church. We are a people who come together, who gather, even just your one-on-one -on -one or you know, two-on-two -two meetings or so where you come together with other believers. This is right and good and something that you should be doing, something that should be true of the church. And so the passage we just looked at, um, th there's a lot to it. Uh, you know, the, the, the whole part that we just kind of considered um, just about the weightiness of, of, of who God is. Um, but there's a lot here about the church. Um, so three things that I want to kind of think about with you. Why do we gather that we see in Hebrews 10? How do we gather? And what is the ultimate hope of our gathering? Why do we gather? How do we gather? And uh, what is the ultimate hope of our gathering? So, so why do we gather? And there's, there's more here. I actually had to cut some of the things out. But the, the two things that I landed on, the, the first kind of why of our gathering. Why are we here? Why, are, why, are, why is this gathering here today? And, and the, the first thing is that we have a common priest. Look at verse 19 through 22 with me. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places, so to go before the presence of God, how? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So in, in, in Old Testament times, in Hebrew times, there was, there was an understanding of the priesthood. Uh, there was a whole tribe of Israel, the Levites, that served as the priests for the people, and they were intercessors. They were a priest is someone who goes to God on behalf of man, who goes to God on behalf of the people. They, they intercede. They, uh, uh, they make an appeal. Uh, 
You see, in this time, they had a, a, a right understanding of God, that God was holy, that he was pure, that, that his way and, and his essence was altogether right and that we were sinful and that our sin was offensive to him, that our sin had put us at odds with him. And so they understood, people in Hebrew time, they needed a priest. They needed someone who could make an appeal for them. They needed someone who was innocent, if you will, to appeal to a holy God on their behalf. And the priests made this appeal by the blood of sacrifices, by the blood of these lambs or sacrificial goats. Now, you, you may hear about this. You may have read about this in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system. And you may kind of think, well, this is kind of archaic. Uh, this is kind of uncivilized. You know, of course, we don't do things like this. Why, would, why is this important to us? And I would say that we, we still do things that are somewhat related to this, uh, we certainly understand the idea of intercession. I have a friend right now that's looking for a job, and he's, he's a friend of mine that is formerly worked with me or worked uh, you know, on, on my staff at a, a previous church. And so, you know, I've been getting all these calls lately, right? People are calling for references. I'm one of his references. And so people will call and they'll say, you know, hey, you should we hire so-and-so. And, -so? and uh, what are they doing? They're, they're asking me to make an appeal for him. They're, as, he, they're asking for an intercessor, somebody to intercede for him. And of course, you know, this guy is great. And so I've been saying, yeah, you should hire him. He's amazing. Um, I am making an appeal by his past work to them. And you, you may say, well, yeah, I, okay, I get that, Jason. But what's the deal with all the dead lambs? Like, what, <laughs> what's the deal with all the sacrifices here? The, the, what's the deal with that? I understand a working reference. But why a priest? And, and you're right when you understand that, that a priest is different. It's similar, but it's, it's actually very different. See, when you're righteous, if you are righteous, you don't need a priest. All you need is your record, right? All you need is what you've done. And you need somebody to say, look, this person's righteous. They're good. Look at what they've done. Look, look at how good they've been. But when you're not righteous, when you have sinned, when you're not holy, when you really have nothing to offer, then you don't just need a good reference. You, you need a priest. And the reason that the priests of old had to kill the lamb, because they weren't basing the appeal to God, if you will, on the righteousness of the person. No, they, they were basing it, if you will, on the innocence of the lamb. It, it, it was this sign, it was this symbol that the innocent lamb had to die because of the guilty person. The guilt really was offensive. The guilt really was costly. The sin really did mean something. And so this, this sacrificial system over and over and over again there in Jerusalem was a sign to the people of the weightiness and the costliness of their sin. The, the innocent lamb had to die in the place of the guilty person. And through that sacrifice, they could have peace with God. They could have access to God. You could be Forgiven. And so there was an incredibly strong connection to the priest. I mean, obviously the priest played an important role. It was through this priesthood, through these intercessors, that you could actually know God. And of course, what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that you, in Jesus, have a better priest, right? We're not counting on the priests of old, on the, tribes of, on the tribe of Levi to intercede for us. No, you actually have the greatest priest of all, the one who is truly innocent, the one who is actually pure, the one who is actually righteous, who brings the appeal to God. And the appeal that he brings is not just the blood of a lamb. He actually brings his own blood. 
He's the kind of priest that's actually sacrificed himself so that you could be forgiven. There is no better priest. And in him and by his blood, you can be forgiven and have access to God. And I want to say this to you because some of you aren't believers. You aren't really Christians because you've never really come to Jesus as your priest. Some of you have only come to him as a good work reference. Some of you have only come to him basically with your righteousness, asking him to kind of vouch for you. It's, it's kind of as if you're saying, look, I've done a lot of righteous things. Here's my references. You'll notice Jesus is on there. He can vouch for me. He can tell you that I've been in church. He can tell you that I've done all these good things. And so, you know, he can vouch for me, but you know, really I, I've been a good person. Now, if you think that way, you may know that of course there's other people in the church and those are the people that, that really do need a priest, right? Those are the people that have really messed up, that have done something really bad, done one of those sins. Of course, we realize that for those people, they need a priest. They need kind of this extra measure of grace. And I just want to say, there aren't just some Christians that have really messed up and that really need God's grace. No, that's the only kind of Christian that there is. And so if you haven't realized your need for a priest, if you haven't realized your total inability to go before a holy God, then you don't know God. You don't know Christ. He's not a work reference. He's not our great reference point on our resume. No, he, is, he comes to us as a priest. He comes to ruined sinners like you and me and offers a perfect sacrifice before a holy God. And that in him and in him alone, we can be saved. We can have access to God. And if, that, if, you, believe, if you see Jesus as your priest, if you believe that, then that changes you. It does something to you. If you have a priest like that, it pulls you into something. The way you view God and actually the way you view others is totally different. And that's one of the reasons that we gather is because we're the kind of people that have realized my only hope is that God has sent me an intercessor. God has sent me a priest. God has sent me a priest. And in that priest and only in that priest, I have an appeal before almighty God. And, 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 and if that's true of you, there's an incredible bond in that. Having a common priest, I mean, you might meet another Christian and they may be from another country and they may speak a different language and they may be from a totally different socioeconomic class than you. But if you have a common priest, there is an immediate connection. There is an immediate oneness. There is an immediate gathering. One of the reasons that we gather is that we have a common priest. But also a second reason that we gather, and this is very interesting, is to keep us from sin. And ultimately to keep us from hell, look at verse 23 through 27, a very interesting passage. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another along to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another 
and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, what does this passage mean? You know, this is something that if you've been around church for a long time, you've probably heard somebody talk about this idea of losing your salvation or the idea of assurance of faith. Does this mean that you can lose your salvation? Does this mean that you can't be assured? One of the things, one of the phrases that you kind of hear Christians say um, is once saved, always saved, right? Have you heard that before? Once saved, always saved. Christians believe, a lot of Christians believe, once saved, always saved. We can have assurance. And I just want to clarify, there, there is assurance. If you know Christ, if you truly know Christ, if he has been your priest, if the, the Holy Spirit of God has come to you and filled your heart and filled your life, then you can have assurance that God will keep you until the day when you see Jesus, until the day when you, when you, when you know Christ in his kingdom. But this idea doesn't mean a few things that I think it's been misconstrued of. It, it doesn't mean once prayed a prayer, always saved, right? It doesn't mean once baptized, always saved, or once walked an aisle, always saved. You know, Richard Dawkins, when he was 12, 13, 14, he actually thought about becoming a priest. I mean, I know this. He says he actually, for, for two years of his life, he fervently prayed and sought after God, thought about becoming a priest. But then, of course, Richard Dawkins has spent the rest of his life, <laughs> convincing people that God is a delusion, that Christianity is a myth. That in fact, he goes further to say that Christians, Christians are idiots. You know, We're small-minded, idiotic people. So are we supposed to imagine that when Richard Dawkins dies, him going to heaven one day and getting there and, and uh, being like, what am I doing here? Uh, you know, I think this is all a delusion. I think you're all idiots. And St. Peter saying, well, you should have thought about that when you were 12 years old and you prayed a prayer, you know. No, that, that's, that's not what should be implied when we think about assurance. You know, there's a lot of people that have had a religious experience. There's a lot of people that even do religious things that don't really know God. And we see this all throughout the Bible. Matthew 7, it's, a, it's an amazing passage of Scripture this is the words of our Lord. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This means that there is a way to do many mighty works in the name of the Lord and be lost. It's possible to cast out demons in the name of Jesus and, and not know God. That's a terrifying thing. And this is pretty common in the teaching of Jesus. You know, whether it's wheat and tares or sheep and goats or houses on a rock or a house on a rock or a house on the sand, there's oftentimes where there's two things that are really similar. It's hard to tell the difference, right? The house on the rock, the house on the sand, they both, the, the, the picture is they're both the same house. It's the same house. They're both beautiful houses. One's on rock, one's on sand. The wheat and the tear, it's hard to know which one is, is truly wheat. The sheep and the goats, they're similar. But one is saved 
and one is lost. One knows the Lord and one does not. And I think what Hebrews 10 is saying, that one of the ways that we can discern this, and one of the ways that you can actually discern this in your own life is through the gathering. Now, I'm not saying that just going to church means that you know God. What I am saying is that in a healthy church, I believe that in a healthy church, we're going to talk about kind of what that means in our next point. In a healthy church, you can work out who really knows the Lord and who really doesn't. Here's the deal. Sin always hides in darkness, okay? Sin only grows in the darkness. Sin does not want to be exposed. If there's a sin in your life and it's growing, chances are nobody knows about it. You haven't exposed it. Certainly nobody that knows the Lord knows about it. You're, you're hiding that sin because that's how sin grows. It only grows in the darkness. And so oftentimes when somebody falls into an unrepentant sin, you know where you don't see them is in the gathering, right? You don't see them in church. They quit coming. They don't like it. Sin, sin doesn't like the word of God. Sin doesn't like the fellowship of believers. And so sin avoids those things. But there are some sins that are so shrewd that they can actually hide out in the gathering. And this is why it really matters how you gather and what gathering really means. We're going to get to this point in a second, but let me illustrate this. For example, the sin of drunkenness, okay? The sin of drunkenness usually hides from the gathering, right? Uh, some of you may have come to church drunk before. And I'll just say, you know, if you wake up and you're hungover or you're a little tipsy still from the night before, just get a good breakfast, get a cup of coffee and come. I'd rather you come, okay? But what I do know is that you're not gonna keep coming like that, right? You'll come and you'll feel so horrible that you'll be like, I gotta quit doing this. You'll, you'll either quit getting drunk or you'll just, the next week, you'll be like, I'm not gonna do that again. You know, I'm gonna, I gotta quit going there. I don't wanna be a part of that. You'll either feel convicted and quit sinning or you'll just stop coming. But there are other sins that can kind of hide out in the gathering. Sins like pride, self-righteousness, anger sometimes, judgmentalism. These sins in some gatherings, depending on the gathering, these can hang out in the gathering for years and some, in some cases even grow in the gathering. Which is why our second point is really important, how you gather. It's not just that we're gathering, it's, it's how we're gathering. Look at verse uh, 23 through 25 with me. Um, well, 23, uh, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Now verse 24, there's a lot here. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, this is incredibly helpful in terms of how we should be gathering. There's a couple of words here that I want us to think about. So first of all, one another. The phrase, the idea, one another, it appears a hundred times in the New Testament. It is everywhere in the New Testament, everywhere in the description of the church, love one another, exhort one another, stir one another, serve one another, be patient with one another, be at peace with one another. There are 59 one another commands in the New Testament. As we've been saying, Christianity is necessarily a 
one another thing. It is a gathering thing. It is a together thing. Um, it is a be concerned with one another. It is a belonging thing. Again, this is why you want, we want you to join the church, why we want you to become a member, is why we want you to be in a group. This is where you're working out your faith. I would just ask you, if you're not a member of a church or not a part of a church, who is your one another? Who are you one anothering along with? And be committed to one another. It says, don't neglect one another. Don't neglect to meet together. The word for meet together here. Um, is epe synagogue. It, 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 it's where we kind of get the idea of synagogue. It's similar to ecclesia. Um, don't, and, and, but it's, it's not just don't neglect a meeting or don't neglect going to a church service. No, it's, it's don't neglect the assembly. Don't neglect the congregation. Uh, it's not just don't neglect going to a church service or don't neglect listening to the sermon podcast normally or don't neglect attending an event. No, it's don't neglect your congregation. It would be a good way to translate it. Don't neglect your assembly. Don't neglect the assembly that you are a part of. Don't neglect your congregation. <coughs> you know, there's a difference between a congregation and an aggregation, right? One commentator said, you know, an aggregation is like a group of marbles, right? Just a, a bunch of different objects that are put together. A congregation is a cluster of grapes, some, something that is organically tied together. And I just wanna say what we so desire for Christ's covenant is not that we would be an aggregation of people, not that we would just be some people that showed up to attend an event together, but that we would be a congregation of people, people that are necessarily tied to one another, necessarily joined together in, at life with one another. You know, I was having lunch the other day with a guy who, um, he works at another church and, and he wanted to start a biblical counseling center. He'd heard about ours and he said, man, we want to start one and he, he works at a church that, that doesn't have membership. They don't really have pastors that, you know, kind of shepherd the folks. It's just, it's a great event and it's a, a lot of good things that happen there. But I just said to him, I don't think that a biblical counseling center will work at your church. And, you know, he said, why not? And I said, you, you know, you, this, the biblical counseling center at our church is kind of an overflow of the care that we want to give for one another in the body. It's, it's a resource that we've, we give to one another. It, it, it's not something that you could just kind of tape on to your church and say, well, this is neat. And so maybe people will like it. And, and what I want to say is that that's, that's what I want to be true of our church. That we would be so joined that we would rejoice with each other and suffer with each other and love with each other. That the kind of ministries that we have, that we produce, I don't want to just be an aggregation of ministries, right? It's so easy to see in churches where it says, well, this is neat. This will attract people. This is cool. Let's actually think about things as a congregation. What's going to serve this body? What's going to equip this body? What's going to be good for this body? What, how are we going to pursue the Lord and his ministry and his work together? And when you really are to start to understand the, the church is a congregation and not just an aggregation, then these other words begin to make sense. So the second word here is consider. I love this word. Consider 
how to stir one another along to faith and good works. You know, this really only hit me a few years ago. I, I have long been concerned with stirring people along to faith and good works. But I think as a younger Christian, I missed uh, the word consider. <laughs> I didn't understand the word consider. You know, when I first went to First Baptist Church Covington, I was right out of seminary. And I, uh, I had been at Southern Seminary, very intellectual, very thoughtful, very driven, kind of intense community. And I went to First Baptist Covington and it just was a very different community. And so I got there and I said, I know how to stir them along to faith and good deeds, but I really didn't consider them and what they needed to be stirred along and, and how they needed to be prodded and how they needed to be moved. I love this idea, consider. And there's something that's implied in consider. If you're gonna consider one another, how to stir one another along, how to encourage one another. It's implied that you actually know one another, that you actually know something about one another. When you gather, are you considering others? Or are you just here to get something for yourself? Are you gathering for the sake of the whole body growing up into the fullness of Christ? And again, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be getting something. You should. But, but do you come with any sort of notion toward others in the body? You know, one of the things I love about our elders meetings, we spend most of the time at our elders meeting talking about the congregation, considering the congregation. How can we pray for him? What does she need to grow in her faith? She's not connected to a group. What's a good group for her? Who could, who could disciple her really well? How are we stirring one another Along. And, and we invite you to this thing. You know, one of the things I, I really encourage you guys toward is a member directory. And we, we always have these available at the Connect desk. Mine has some coffee spills on it. I'm sorry. But, um, but just something that you can have to say, okay, who, is, who are these people that I am congregated with? Who is my congregation? It's a great tool to be praying for one another, to be considering one another, to be um, just even thinking, okay, what, what can I do to stir this brother or sister along in Christ? So the third word, the third idea is stir and encourage. Let us consider how to stir up one another. Let us consider how to encourage one another. This idea of stirring and encouraging. You know, you need, I need to be stirred along in my spirituality. I need to be encouraged. I need to be pushed along. I mean, and this looks like a lot of different things. Sometimes it looks like just having a model, right? You need models, right? We all need models. How do you learn how to do something? You get a model. You, you get somebody to show you. Last night, I was showing Rainer how to make the letter R. I was trying to teach him how to write his name. And Rainer's my three-year-old, you know, his brother and sister, they're all in school. And he was getting so frustrated trying to write the letter R. And I would write it. And I'd say, you try it now. And he'd try it and he'd go, oh, um, but I was just making all these R's, trying to teach him, here's how you write an R. I'm giving him a model. I'm giving him something to follow after. You need this in your Christian life. Sometimes, sometimes stirring along just means inviting somebody into the culture of a community. You know, if you're around a lot of people that are regularly reading their Bible and praying and talking about the things of the Lord, guess what? Those things will become values in your life. Sometimes stirring along means correction in church discipline. You know, John Calvin actually one time wrote out, what does it make a church? How do you know what a church is? And he says, well, there's three things, okay? And, and I'll, I'll go from three to one, actually. 
Number three said is the administration of the sacraments, right? A church regularly is baptizing, taking the Lord's Supper together. He said a church are people who gather underneath the preaching of God's word, the pure preaching of God's word, okay? But the first thing he said, this is fascinating. The first thing he said is a church necessarily has church discipline. It's a people of church discipline. What does that mean? Well, discipline is a sign of covenant. It is a sign of union. How do you know who's on the basketball team, right? There may be a lot of people that go to the basketball game. There may be a lot of people that care about the success of the basketball team. Who's on the basketball team? It's the ones who submit to the discipline, right? It's the ones who go to practice. It's the ones who work hard. It's the ones who work in the off season. The one who, the one who are actually doing the things that make them a part of the team. Discipline is a sign of love, right? I don't discipline all children. I only discipline my children. Why? Because they're a part of my family because I love them. Paige doesn't correct every husband. She corrects her husband, right? Why? Because we're in a covenant with one another. Now, people say, well, you know, what is church? Was it just like kicking people out of the church? And again, no. Only on very rare occasions would something like that happen. And, and with, with time and patience and tears, no. 95%, maybe more of church discipline looks like this. It looks like you calling your friend and saying, hey, you know what? We haven't been at Bible study in three weeks. We miss you. Where have you been? Right? Come back. Right? That's, that's, the, that's the normal stirring of the church. And hopefully they, they do come back. Or maybe it's a little more than that. Maybe it's somebody that you know that you're in a relationship with. You say, you know what? I've noticed that you've been very short-tempered lately. That's not becoming of somebody who follows Jesus. What's going on with you? You know, or maybe it's, you know, hey, I just, I just want to say, we've been hanging out. You are not spending enough time with your children, your family, right? Those are the kinds of things that we all need to be stirred along to live out the life of Christ. Sometimes stirring means an invitation more than a correction, right? You might just say, hey, come serve on the hands team with me. Come serve in covenant kids with me. Why don't you go on this mission trip with me? See, there's a concern for the body. Let us consider, right? It's not just Jason consider, the other elders consider. Let all of us consider how to stir one another along. Because what we said last week, we're all together growing into the fullness of who is Christ. Consider how to stir one another along. I need this, you need this. But also encouraging one another. And I like this, is encouraging one another as you see the day drawing near. I want our church to be marked by encouragement. We're always encouraging one another. We're always picking one another up. We're always giving life. What does encourage mean? You know what encourage means? It means to give courage, right? To encourage, to, to implant courage into someone. Say, hey, you're doing great. You can do this. Keep going. But this is not just encouragement. It's encouragement as you see the day drawing near. It's encouragement with the presence of Christ in mind. Jonathan Edwards said that Christians should think about heaven 30 minutes a day. I don't know if you do that. You should though. You should, we really should. Do you think about seeing the Lord? Do you realize that one day you're gonna be in God's presence? Do you realize that one day, one day you're gonna know the fullness of God? If you would think about that more, it would totally change the way you live your life. You know the teams that are gonna to go to the Super Bowl? It's the ones that expect to go to the Super Bowl, right? It's the ones that said, one day I'm gonna be there. And so there's an urgency. They work harder. They, 
They practice better. They, they pay attention to details more, right? Because they have a future hope and your future hope always determines your present now. We encourage one another in light of the day that is drawing near. One day, we, if you really are in Christ, you believe this stuff, one day we believe that we're gonna live in a new heavens, new earth where all has been set right, where there's no jealousy, where there's no dishonesty, where everything is made whole and good. And the sign of Christian maturity is that we would begin living that life, the life that we will live then, as we would live in the presence of God, the sign of Christian maturity is that we begin living that life now. And, and one of the roles of the church is that we encourage one another to live that way, stir one another along to live that way. Which gets us to the last of these ideas, which is love and good works, is the result of gathering. As you gather, as you gather in worship, as you gather for your group, as you gather in Bible study, is the result of your gathering more love and more good works? Do you love God more? Do you love one another more? Are we serving one another more? Are we serving our community? Are we serving um, the kingdom of Christ more? And I just want to say that this probably is not happening if you just regularly watch services online. We don't have our services online. We're not going to ever. Because my goal is not for a lot of people to listen to my sermons. My goal is to build a church. And that can't happen at home when you're not around other people. It doesn't say don't neglect listening to the online sermon a lot. It says, don't neglect gathering together. Don't neglect your congregation. Don't neglect being together as a body. And that will produce love and good works. See, how we gather is so important. It tests out the kind of faith that we have. But lastly, and there's so much to say about this last point, but I'll be really brief. It's the ultimate hope of our gathering. Look at verse 32. It says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You see that you're able to endure even the hardest things because you already have such a possession. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come without delay. But my righteous shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I've said this before. Christians are, Christians should be, we really understand the term, the most progressive people that we know. People are talking now a lot about progressives and conservatives or whatever, but Christians are ultimately progressive. And now you got to define progressive rightly, right? Yeah, I don't mean by, you know, for example, like gender confusion is not progressive. It's actually regressive, right? 
the loss of religious liberty or the loss of freedom of conscience. That's not a progressive idea. That was a 17th century debate. That's, this is regressive. No, but, but what it means to be truly progressive is ultimately to be a Christian. We are the kind of people who believe in a kingdom where everything is set right, where everything is as it should be. There is no more progress than that. I said the new Jerusalem is the most progressive city ever, right? There's, there's no evil. There's no sin. There's no wrongdoing. Everyone perfectly gets along. Everyone is, is perfectly unified. There's, there's per- perfect racial harmony. There's no lying. There's no tears. There's no pain. There's perfect peace. And thus, we as Christians, because we have such an abiding hope, because we have such a foundation, we are a forward-looking people. We are a people that are looking forward to the day when we will be with Jesus. As I just said, this determines how you live now. This determines how you work now, how you spend your money now. This determines everything. And look, one of the reasons that we gather, one of the reasons this is so important, the ultimate hope of our gathering is because this right here, this little gathering where we come together for little spots of the week, they should serve as signposts for you and for me of our ultimate gathering, of our ultimate home. This in so many ways should be a preview of the ultimate gathering when people from every tongue, tribe, and nation are gathered together before the presence of God. And as I said, how we work and how we live and how we treat one another, you should be experiencing some of that here and now. We're reminding ourselves that one day there will be an ultimate gathering of saints where everyone who is in Christ will be brought in before the presence of Jesus, where we'll be made right, where everything will be made new, where everything will be made whole. And so this is so important as we press on together to that day. So we stir one another along in faith until we experience that day. As we urge one another along until we're with Jesus. You know, one of the things that we do, we're going to do when we're with Jesus is we're going to feast. We're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate his triumph. And so Jesus, being so gracious as he is, has actually given us another signpost. And that is in the Lord's Supper. And so as we close the service today, I can't think of a better way to end than by taking this meal. Jesus says that he gave to his disciples on the last night that he was with them. And he said, look, this is my body. And it's been broken for you. I want you to know that you have a priest who intercedes for you before God. And I want you to know that that priest is interceding for you by his own blood. So as we take this meal, we rightly look back to our priest. We gather because we have a common priest. But as we take this meal, and I want you to remember this, we also look forward. We look forward to the hope that we ultimately have, the coming day when those who are in Christ will be gathered together finally and fully in a, in a city where all has been made right, where we will be eating and drinking with our Lord Jesus, celebrating his triumph. 
So if you are in Christ, if you're a believer, and, and, and if you have made that known, I invite you to take this meal. If you're not a believer here today, um, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you, you've heard this message and you've hopefully learned a little bit more about who the church is. Uh, but, but this is not for you. It's not a sign for you, right? It's, it's not something that you would do. It's kind of like, not, you know, if, if I go to uh, uh, a game, I went to the LSU-Oklahoma uh, game. I didn't do all the LSU cheers because I'm not really an LSU fan, right? Save that for them. Something for them to do. But, so if you're not a believer, I just, just let the elements pass. We're glad you're here. But if you are a believer, as a sign to you of what Jesus has done for you in the past and of the hope that you do have in the future, I invite you to, to take this meal. And we're actually going to take it seated today. Our deacons uh, will be coming and passing it. And I just want to say just one little announcement before I pray. If you, if you need a gluten-free option, not all of the, um, the wafers are gluten-free. So just kind of raise your hand and we'll bring you, we'll make sure that you, you have that option. So let's go before the Lord in prayer. I invite you just to stay seated as our deacons come forward to pass these elements. Father, I pray that, that through this meal, um, this would be a sign. It would be a backward-looking sign, a forward-looking sign. A sign, Father, to remember that we have a common priest in Jesus who has opened up access to you, the holy God of the world, Lord. I pray, Father, even as we take this, there'd be a, a sense of adoration and trembling, but also just of, of great confidence in the hope that we have in Christ. And Father, as we take this meal, Lord, may it serve this body, this church, to stay faithful, to keep looking forward the day when we're made new and right in your coming kingdom. And so it's to this end and for this hope that I pray.